0: Would you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6 as we continue our study? Dead to sin once and for all is the title of today's message. What does that mean? What does it look like? How can we know? Paul will share all of those things as we're in Romans 6, we're in the gospel. So things that Paul taught people from the beginning to the end of encountering a person he is teaching to us how can you be born again how can you know that you're born again what is the evidence that you are born again let's pray before we begin heavenly father help us to understand how to follow your son through the instructions that we see through your servant paul in jesus name amen going to begin reading verses 5 through 7, this amazing promise in verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. When we are sure that we have died to sin, when we are sure that we have associated ourselves with, connected ourselves with the death of Jesus Christ, then Paul says in verse 5, then we will certainly be raised like him. Jesus rose powerfully, supernaturally, immortally from the tomb. And he established that for 40 days. And Paul is explaining to us in Romans chapter 6 that we can connect ourselves to his death by being obedient to the gospel. And that is a certainty that it will connect us to the glorified body like Christ. So as soon as we connect to his death, everything that God has, which is extensive, is for us. And the evidence that we have died to sin, Paul will explain, is serving. So if we went back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, his opening statement is, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul uses this language in all All of his letters, he teaches us in his letters that we are all slaves of something. Usually it is to the world, usually it is to ourselves, usually it is to the things that I want to do. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ. Um, The the slavery language um, of the day of the empire of Rome is the picture that that he uses, a bond slave, slave. A servant, in other words, I'm at the will of my master. In Philippians, he opens his letter, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul says, he has made me a servant of the gospel. So he is writing the letter to Ephesus in chains in Rome because he's a servant to the gospel. In Um, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul refers to Tychicus who is from Asia Minor where Ephesus is and other churches like Ephesus and he says that Tychicus is my fellow servant for the cause of the gospel. So Paul's self-description is servant. Um, So turn in your Bibles to Luke Chapter 17, as Jesus gives us the attitude and the picture of a servant who follows him. As human beings, it is difficult for us to agape love someone, for example. Agape love, which is a selfless, others-focused love, is not possible for a human being, the Bible tells us. So we have eros love, which we get the word erotic from. We have phileo love, which we get, I love you like a brother. That's why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, even though it's not really, (laughs) if you hear about Philadelphia. So there are different types of love. Agape love is I'm completely sacrificed on your behalf. That is never possible from human beings but it is possible through human beings. And that is the love of Christ. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. So you can agape love me and I can agape love you by borrowing the love of Jesus Christ. So we talked about fruit of the Spirit in Sunday school. It's actually fruit from the Spirit. When love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control are through me, it is not my love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. It is the kindness of Christ through me. So we have a difficult time with if I sacrificially love you, what are you going to do for me? It's built in our human nature. I sacrificed greatly for you today. I wonder what the outcome will be. That's the wrong picture. Luke is explaining to us or Jesus is explaining to us in the gospel of Luke he gives us this example in verse 7 of Luke 17 suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field come along now and sit down and eat won't he rather say prepare my supper get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The Bible is very clear that God rewards those who earnestly seek him, that there is laid up in store for us treasures in heavens. things when we invest the way God wants to invest, which is in people, loving people, um, leading people to Christ. He will reward us exceedingly beyond anything we could ever do for him. But he says the attitude that I reward is... Jesus, I'm doing this for you. I'm glad I'm doing it for you. I don't need to be praised for doing it. I don't need to be rewarded. He says, if if you have a servant and he, he said the picture is that he worked all day in the fields. And when he comes in, the master says, okay, now that you're done with that, make my meal. Serve me. Make me satisfied. And then he says, you may eat when I'm finished. And then he s- says, should the servant hear, great job, Jim. No, the servant, the attitude of Christ, Philippians 2:5, is that after I have done everything you've told me to do, my response is, I'm unworthy. Thank you for letting me serve you. So Jesus says in another place in the gospel that even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, didn't come to be served. He didn't come to be thanked. He didn't come to be receive a pat on the back even from his Father. His Father sent him to the world to live a righteous life, to die a righteous death, And Jesus had the attitude, Father, I will do everything you want to the end. So from the cross, when he said, it is finished, he did everything the Father told him to do. And then he went to heaven. Jesus is saying here that I want your attitude to be not what you'll gain from serving me. Not, I did this, you'll do that. The Bible says, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? So he will give us exceedingly and abundantly above all we ask or imagine. He will reward us whenever we have this attitude. If I don't have this attitude, and it may be hard for you to tell at times if I have this attitude, then there is nothing rewarding waiting for me in heaven um, this attitude, let's turn to Galatians chapter 5 and just look at the first verse in that chapter. Paul asks the question at the beginning of Romans 6, if, if grace increases when sin increases, should I just keep sinning? Absolutely not. You've died to sin. You've been set free from the power of sin. That's the message we're going to look at in Romans 6 today. And in chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We just sang about that, a perfect song for this example. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In this particular case, he's saying, don't be religious again. Don't do this so God will do that. Don't touch this, eat this, be baptized in this. Don't be religious He's saying it is for freedom that he has set us free. What freedom? Freedom to leave sin behind. Freedom to serve Christ. Freedom from slavery of sin. That's what he is talking about in Romans 6 as we go back there. I think of a song by one of the most popular Christian groups that... The last time I watched the Dove Awards, they've become difficult to watch. They sang that. It was song of the year. They sang it on the Tonight Show. Um, And I I looked up the lyrics this morning to make sure I was correct. There's a line in the song that says, There will be days when I lose the battle, but grace says it doesn't matter. Grace never says it doesn't matter. It's not okay to lose the battle. It's not okay for the servant to have said, well, today I'm going to eat first. Or, I'll do this, but I am worthy. The picture is that grace in the Bible, Coloss- or Titus 2.11, grace is the power by which I put sin to death and I live for Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Romans 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And that freedom is to say no to sin and to serve Jesus Christ. The evidence of a future resurrection is my current obedient to Jesus Christ. In, back in Romans chapter 6 and verse 8, Paul says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Here's a second promise. There are, he is giving us everything we need, verse 5. If we're connected to his death, then we're connected to his resurrection. If we died with him, he says in verse 8, we will live with him. So these are theological pillars that are guaranteed. There's no religion in the world outside of the Bible-believing faith in God That offers these things as guarantees it is guaranteed that once I'm connected to his death I'm connected to his resurrection it is guaranteed that that if I live for him I will live with him these things are guaranteed and those things are more attractive than the things when he's telling us to die to sin how can you be slaves in it how can you live in it any longer how can you go on sinning if you're following Christ Jesus says the servant's attitude is that I will do everything that I can for you and in the end I'll say I'm unworthy. Thank you for accepting me. The picture of the prodigal son. So verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know, I love that word, that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What happens when we die to sin? We live to God. That's the freedom in Galatians 5.1. The chains of trying to make my own way, the grip that the world has on me, that sin has on me, when I come to Christ and I bow before Him, the chains are broken. I'm free. Free to do what I want? No, that's a misunderstanding of freedom. Free to serve Christ. That is a greater blessing than we will ever realize. When I can be serving Him, which is the highest value to me, as well as it is to Him, He died Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter says that Jesus died for sin once for all. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to start with verse 15, we've got verse 18 in your notes. But in the first sentence, in verse 15, if we obey that sentence, everything will fall into place. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Revere the anointed one as the master. Look at him as the sovereign. That's what Lord means, kuriosk. Sovereign master. If we serve him as master, if we revere him as master, everything will fall into place. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So first we stop on that verse for a minute. The most powerful thing that I can pray for a lost person that is biblically supported is that they will hear the truth. That's the most you can pray for a lost person. God save them, violates free will. We, we, when we get the picture wrong in presentation, the picture gets wrong in reception. It is my job to do two things. Represent Christ in what I do and know his word to be able to give an answer. When I think I'm the convictor, I've broken the picture. I'm the ambassador. I'm the truth bearer. I should be the truth liver, the one who lives it. And then the Holy Spirit is positioned. The best thing that we can do is make the offer that God is giving clear. And that's what he is saying in verse 15 of 1 Peter 3. Verse 16 in 1 Peter 3 keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So in these two verses, he gives us those two objectives. Verse 15, know the answers to their questions and be ready to give them. Verse 16, live for Christ so that the only thing they can say about you is, he lives for Christ. It's kind of like the demon-possessed girl These men here are going to lead you into the truth of the Son of God. Paul finally cast the demon out of her, but she's telling the truth. What Peter is saying here is that let there be the truth about you, that the accusation is that you follow Christ, verse 17, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Simply put, if you're going to suffer, suffer for following Christ. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That's what has to happen to us. And if we connect with God in 1 Peter 3, 18, then we will have a resurrection like his. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. Before the disciples, the apostles could be sent out into the world to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. So Paul says if we're crucified with Christ, we will have glorified bodies like him. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, that if that didn't happen with him, we're in trouble. We're to be pitied among all men. If Christ doesn't raise from the dead, Paul says everything we're doing doesn't matter. He died on the cross, fantastic. He took my sins to hell to in my place, fantastic. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if he doesn't come out of the tomb in a glorified body, we will never have glorified bodies. We will die in our sins. We will still be guilty. So Luke writes in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, extensive proof. Well, the first thing he has to do is prove it to the people who are going to die for it. One of the strongest testimonies of the truth of the gospel is that the apostles gave their lives for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It would have been pretty unlikely that they would die for something that didn't happen or something that they were lying about. So the entire chapter of Luke 24 really is... Luke is focused on the resurrection of Jesus. When we see Peter and James and John and Paul throughout the book of Acts and throughout their letters, they're not saying, God changed me, God saved me, I'm a Christian. They're saying, Jesus rose, Jesus rose, Jesus rose. Because if he rose from the dead, and we connect to his death, Paul says in Romans 6, then we will also raise with glorified bodies. So there's an amazing testimony on the road to Emmaus, verse, beginning in verse 13. In the interest of time, we're going to go where... Um, I think I've got verse 36 in your notes. Let's, let's set it up a little bit with verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, these two disciples who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and it was revealed to them that that was Jesus, that he rose from the dead, that he took them through the Old Testament to prove it. There they found the 11, 12 minus Judas, who has committed suicide, and those who with them assembled together. would have been like the women, um, Jesus' mother, Um, All of these people would have been assembled together, verse 34, and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread and they're they're excited and they come into the room and the disciples are scratching their heads and they're thinking, I don't know, I didn't see it myself. We see doubt even beyond Thomas's doubt in John chapter twenty. They're still doubting. No one here has seen him except Simon, John, and the two on the road to Emmaus. Verse 36, in this locked room where these men were led in, they're saying, it's true, the Lord is risen. We saw him. He showed himself to us. Verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So the first thing he does is prove he has a glorified body. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man while he walked the earth. He couldn't just violate the the walking through a solid door because he was also a 100% human being. First thing he says, I want to show you is I'm a glorified body. These men are in a room with the doors locked thinking the Romans are going to kill them And he walks through the wall into the room and he says, Peace be with you, verse 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost, just like when he walked on water earlier. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Proof number two, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself and it is I when we see those three little words in the Greek to English is the same as I am in Genesis or excuse me in Exodus chapter 3 when he sees Moses so here he says look at my hands and my feet it is I myself and then proof number 3 touch me and he says and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones That's an important word for a Jehovah's Witness because they say that Jesus didn't raise physically. They said that he only raised spiritually. And in the Gospel of Luke, he says, Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Touch me. Push on me. Do you feel my ribs? Do you feel my muscles? Do you see that I am flesh and bones? He is proving to them that He rose from the dead. Verse 40, He showed them His hands and His feet. Maybe He rolled up His sleeves and pulled up His gown and held them out literally and and put the, the piercings right in front of them. Proof number four, and while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave Him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. I'm alive. I'm glorified. Here's my scars. Touch my flesh. Feel my bones. Give me something to eat. When he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, he would be physical from then on. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit remain Spirits. Jesus is a spirit with a body. And that's why when we study the first fruits in Leviticus chapter 23, the significance of the first fruits, he's the first fruit of the resurrection. He is the first to have a glorified physical body. So my daughter is in heaven in her spirit. She is waiting for what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through the end of the chapter, and 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. That's when she will get her glorified body. That's when I will get my glorified body. What will it be like? 1 John 3 2, it'll be like Jesus' body. Don't deserve that, but it's coming. It's promise. We'll see that when we get to Romans 8, crystal clear. Verse 44. He now needs to attach them to the sword of the Spirit as their only weapon. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So two things happen here that are critical to apologetics. Number one, to a Jew, the, what he says the law and the Psalms and the prophets is the entire Old Testament. So if a person says, well, I believe Jesus, but I don't believe the Old Testament is for us. Well, Jesus says, first of all, everything in there is about me. Second of all, it had to be fulfilled. Third of all, Here I am. From Genesis to Malachi, Jesus. Jesus says, Here I am. We read in Luke chapter 4 this week where Jesus walks into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and he says to the servant, Will you bring me the scroll of Isaiah? He brings it over. He unrolls it and he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to set the captives free. And he reads on. He rolls the scroll back up. The servant takes it and he says to them, This has happened today in your presence. I'm the one Isaiah wrote about 740 years ago. Here Jesus is saying to his disciples, Everything written in the Old Testament is scripture and it's all about me and I have fulfilled it. Here I am. Verse 47, I'll read verse 46. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead, Isaiah 53, on the third day. And repentance... For the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father promised, the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. That power and that regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus... Luke chapter 24, verse 47, is the gospel message of the Great Commission. So the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is, I'm sending you out to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The message is to them, so that you can disciple them, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is the only plan of God for you. If you repent, he will forgive you. If you associate with his death, you will certainly rise again. That's the message. Luke 24, 47 is the clearest verse in the Bible on what Jesus told his disciples to preach. So he says, you are my witnesses. I have shown you. I raised supernatural I have flesh and bones. I have scars. Trivia question, what's the only thing in heaven that's man-made? The scars on Jesus Christ. And I can eat just like you will forever. We will eat from the, the trees of life on both sides of the river flowing from the throne in heaven forever. So first of all, Paul is saying in Romans 6, this glorified resurrection of Jesus Christ is yours if you give your life to him. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, we pick it up in verse 11. And I want to read... In Romans 6, I want to read the verses we read first so you can appreciate. Starting in verse 9 and 10, listen to all of this language closely. For we know that since Christ raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So take everything in those two verses and then say, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, all of those glorious things in verses 9 and 10, that is your endowment. That is your promise He would say in Romans chapter 8, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if you have given your life to him, then everything that he was showing them in Luke chapter 24, this glorified, last forever, sinless, perfect, immortal body is yours. It's yours. Just like his. He is saying, reading on, verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Paul says, as for you, the glorified body awaits. The rewards of heaven awaits. The inheritance of the earth, Romans 4, awaits in heaven forever. Perfect, sinless, immortal bodies forever. Since this is true, 1 John chapter 3 and verse Everyone who knows this, he says, purifies their body, lives for God, dies to themselves, lives for Christ. And then he goes emphatic on the negative and emphatic on the positive. Which parts of you should you give to Christ? All of them in the positive. How much of the world can you hold on to? How much of Jim gets to stay Jim? None of it. He says, earlier we read Jesus saying, the servant does everything he's told to do and in the end says, I'm unworthy. I don't even deserve to be called your servant. The prodigal son says in the picture of salvation in Luke chapter 15, he says, every bit of you is God's. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is explaining many times in 2 Corinthians the power that is in us. He says in Ephesians 1 that the power that it took to raise Jesus from completely dead to glorified lives in us. It lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So... In chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, Paul is comparing the power that lives in us compared to Moses and the law. And he says in verse 16, but whenever anyone turns, what's another word for that? When any, anyone repents, the veil is taken away. Luke chapter 16 tells us that celebrate, or 15 tells us there's a celebration in heaven among the angels whenever a sinner repents. Here it says, the veil is taken away. God is now residing in a human being. That God is residing in a human being is uncovered. It should be recognizable that a person has God himself living inside them. So the veil is taken away, he says in verse 16 now verse 17 now the lord is the spirit lord there curious speaking of jesus is spirit speaking of the holy spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is here's our word again freedom galatians 5 1 free to do what free to say no to sin and to serve christ verse 18 and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So theologically, the Trinity is heavy in these verses. The Lord is Jesus Christ. God the Father is in this picture too. Jesus Christ works in me by the person of the Holy Spirit. You can't separate them. How do I follow Jesus Christ? By the Holy Spirit. By the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, I follow God. Paul says here that we who with unveiled, we we have the curtain pulled back. God is on earth. He lives in me. That should be visible. And Paul says, as I contemplate the glory of the one who is in me through the word of God, through the renewing of my mind, Romans 12, through the changing of the attitude of my mind, Ephesians 4, with the attitude of Christ, Philippians 2, and with the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, when I come into the word of God in order to serve Christ through his directives, then the Spirit of God unveils me more and more and more. So that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that each one has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What does that mean? It means God on earth, in me, should demonstrate to you uniquely. So this uniqueness, let's understand this picture Hold your place there. We'll be right back in 2 Corinthians. Go to John chapter 15. I've mentioned before that the reason they call universities universities is because they should strive for unity and diversity. So perfect unity is the Trinity. Perfect diversity is the Trinity. So university really is a word that should be used for God. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are so entwined, so perfect in unity, there's there's no discussion or debate. They're in perfect unity. And they work in perfect unity. And they have perfect diversity in that God the Son dies on the cross. He lives in me through the Holy Spirit under the heading of God the Father. So Jesus is explaining this to his disciples in John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16. We pick it up in chapter 15 verse 26. When the advocate, the Holy Spirit, he's been talking about the Holy Spirit all throughout this chapter, beginning in verse 18. When the advocate comes, whom I send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father will testify about me. And you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. Again, pointing to his life, his death, and his resurrection. But he gives this perfect picture of the Trinity. The Father is the head. Jesus is the name above all names. The Spirit is the one who personally resides. So, in 1 Corinthians, Jesus will say like he says here, I send the Spirit. In other places, it will say the Father sends the Spirit. It is true both ways every time. So Jesus says them both here, the Spirit's going to come from the Father, and I'm going to send him as I go back to the Father. So this Spirit that he is talking about as we go back to 2 Corinthians is giving us that picture. I'm just going to mainly read from um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would turn there, this transformation. from this physical body that you see in front of you and I see you in front of me, to our glorified bodies. And all of these passages point back to obedience. The purpose, why am I telling you all this? Why is God writing all of this down? Is so that we would consider that we have died to sin and we have become servants of Christ Jesus. In chapter 5 and verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, for we know, there's that word again, We are sure that if the earthly tent, this physical body that's decaying each day, if that earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed. He talked about that in chapter 3. Instead, with our heavenly dwelling, our eternal bodies, living in heaven. Verse 3, Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Our resurrections, our glorified bodies. Verse 5, The one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Here's what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say. And would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is the key statement in all of this. So we make it our goal to please him. What's my goal tomorrow? It should be to please God. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And then here's the accountability that lies ahead with the rapture. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. In that Greek word there, bima, seat, 100% of these people that Paul is writing to are saying, I'm a Christian, I'm following Christ, I'm born again. Paul says, well, if that's true, then you can know that when this body is gone, a heavenly one comes. You can know that when you leave this earth, you're present with God. And you can know that you will sit before him one day and he will give an account for everything you've done since you followed him. For all the things that you did good, he will reward you. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11, for the things that you've done that were just selfish, they will burn up. They will be lost forever. And you will go into heaven with God. And then he says in verse 5, This is all from God. God the Father puts us in Christ, seals us with the Holy Spirit who guarantees everything. The Holy Spirit is the regenerator and he's the guarantee of the promise. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 and verse 14, our last verse for today. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Do you see how that verse says the opposite of the lyrics I read from that song? The lyrics of the song said, um, there'll be days when I've lost the battle. Grace says it doesn't matter. Paul in Romans 6 and verse 14 says because you're not under the law and you're under grace, stop sinning. Live for God. Grace is everything we need to obey God. It is every blessing we will receive. It is every instruction that we understand. It is every power that that can allow Paul to say I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. To say no to something wrong, Titus 2.11, is grace. To be free, Galatians 5.1, means that no matter what it feels like, no matter what it looks like, we live by faith, not by sight. Faith says to sin, you have no authority here. You have no power here. I'm under grace. It is grace that enables me to obey. It is grace that endows me with all that I need to obey. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. So much gospel in the first 11 chapters of our Bible. And there's a statement that that happens here that um, we have religion battling relationship from the beginning. We are a religious country. And look at our country in the mirror. You believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. The truth, well, whatever you think the truth is. When when they were um, putting a Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh on trial, they never ask. This is... This is the United States government. The United States government will not ask at a trial, is that true? The language seems subtle. But they'll say, is that your truth? They would never directly ask this woman who apparently was lying about things with Kavanaugh, they would say, help us understand your truth as if there are multiple truths. So, truth, we are a post-truth culture. Um, and the reality is that we go, go all the way back to Adam and Eve and the first sin was a religious act of I will, I will cover myself up and God says, no, something has to die, blood has to be shed, put these on. And then, we have these boys, Cain and Abel. Um, just part of the story that you need to realize is, is Abel is probably a young boy. And Cain is probably about 129 years old. Or he's about 129 when Seth is born in place of Abel. So Cain is taking his little brother and he's leading him and trying to pull him towards religion. And, and Abel has nothing to do with that. And he worships God on God's terms. Cain worships God on Cain's terms. And he says something God does after Cain sins. He says, Cain, if you'll do the right thing, I'll accept you. Righteousness before God, as we talked about in Sunday school. Right according to God. So in verse 6... Of chapter 4 we read this command that is to every human being the Lord said to Cain why are you angry why is your face downcast if you do what is right will you not be accepted but if you do not do what is right sin is crouching at your door it desires to have you you must rule over it. So one of the many things, there's a high school that's rebelling against the United States of American government because they won't let boys compete in girls' sports. And the, and the United States government is going after them. So we live in a culture where whatever you feel like, is true. Whatever you choose for yourself is true. So God says two things to Cain. I'm the one who says what's right. And if you do what I say, I will accept you. If you do not, I warn you. Sin is crouching at your door. You must rule over it. I have these desires. We all do. We're all sinful. We all want to do things that God says is wrong to us God says sin is crouching at your door you must rule over it you must choose what is right turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this magnifies a million times what he is saying to Cain Paul is writing to Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit who have all the divine nature and grace and authority to say no to sin every time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I'm, things are going well. I'm being obedient. Life is smooth. Be careful, God says to you. God says to me, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. So first statement, the sin you think you can't avoid, everyone faces those temptations. First thing goes on. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will allow you to go through suffering that you can't bear and he'll take you through it. Temptation is different than that. A temptation that would overwhelm you is not allowed by God. He says to Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you, and I won't let him. Every temptation that comes to a human being comes through the hand of allowance of Jesus Christ. So you have things that are a greater temptation for you than me, and I have things that are a greater temptation for me than you. But Paul is saying through God here is that it wouldn't be allowed if it could actually overtake you. So he is saying what he said to Cain. Because that's true, you must rule over it. You must say no to it. So number one, he won't allow a temptation that would overrun me. Reading on, he says... But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. My personal understanding of that statement is if you know already how to avoid a certain sin by not being in that place, God gave you that. I believe that human beings, Christians, are way more effective in faithfulness when they've already decided before it happens. If a certain street in a certain town is a temptation for me, don't go on that street. Don't walk into Satan's realm and say, okay, Lord, you promised me no temptation will overcome me. Bad idea. But however you look at it, he tells us two things. Number one... The temptation you're facing, I only allowed it because it cannot overtake you. Number two, I've provided a way out every time. You can always choose to avoid. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. People who are new to faith or very mature, as Timothy is, need to be challenged in this area. Timothy's makeup was that he was shy, that he was unsure of himself, that he, his stomach problems, as Paul addresses, are probably related to um, stomach ulcers because Timothy was not, in his eyes, up to the challenge of of being a pastor that he is in 2 Timothy. And one of the things Timothy struggled the most was with, he's a young man, he's in his 20s, and apparently he's being assaulted by 50, 60, 70-year-old men who know more than he does, and Paul says, Timothy, go to them in truth and forget about your age so those are the kind of things that were timothy's temptations and paul says to him in verse six he says for this reason i remind you to fan, fan into flame the gift of god which is in you through the laying on of my hands if we went to first timothy chapter four we would see that what actually happened was paul was raising timothy up and at some point the church of ephesus well into paul's ministry gets raised up paul's their pastor for three and a half years And then at that point, um, at some point, they said, Timothy, God's calling you to be a pastor. Paul and the elders went around him and they prayed and they said, Lord, we, we, we give the gift you have given us to give to this church as Timothy, their pastor. And Paul says, now fan it into flame. Make it grow. Do what you're supposed to do. Allow the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do. Verse 7, Paul writes, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So if we take that into 1 Corinthians 10, I always have the power to obey. I always have the power to love. I always have the power to discipline myself to say no to that And yes to that. Because Paul says, the spirit that lives in you is greater than anything in the world. Whatever the world assaults you with. And by the way, I want you to know, Paul would say, the Holy Spirit and Satan are not rivals. They're enemies, but they're not rivals. Satan is nothing compared to the Holy Spirit. Avoid him, yes. Respect him, yes. Fear him, only if you're not walking by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying that to Timothy here. And he is going on and urging Timothy throughout the chapter. And we finish with verse 12 today for our purposes. Paul says, he's suffering because he's following Christ. And he gives the reason why and how he can do that. That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet... This is no cause for shame because I know whom I've believed in and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I, what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul said, Jesus, you're my master. You're my Lord. I'm following you. Paul says, I know who I'm following. I know who he is, how he is, and how he has been in my life. So Paul is writing Second Timothy shortly before his execution. And he's saying, Timothy, I can do that. I can go through this because it's Jesus Christ that I'm living for. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand the gospel for ourselves more clearly first. That if I am born again, I should be visibly changed. I should have, as Paul says, died to sin. How can I live in it any longer? I should offer no part of myself to sin and every part of myself to God. Lord, we know it's true that if we do that, we will be blessed a hundred times over in this life and even more than that in the life to come, no matter what it looks like. Help us to be faithful. Help us to allow the ever-increasing glory that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3, the ever-visible transformation of a human being so that another human being would follow Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.